It's so easy to fund these programs. Tell the kids to recycle. Put the bench in front of the grocery store that says, made out of plastic bags. Well, nobody's asking, can you make this bench cheaper out of virgin oil and gas? Yes. Is anybody gonna wanna spend more money on this bench because you made it out of plastic bags? No. When you actually get down into the nitty gritty of these questions, the whole thing falls apart. It's like a house of cards. That was Laura Sullivan, an investigative reporter for NPR's Planet Money. Her groundbreaking feature story on the recycling and plastics industry, Wasteland, won her a third DuPont baton this February. Laura is a force of nature. She has won not one, not two, but three DuPont awards. And not many people can say that. She's just a superb journalist and voice for NPR. And we thought she'd be the perfect person to kick off our new season of On Assignment. Welcome to the 15th season of On Assignment from Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright, Executive Director of the Professional Prizes Program, joined today as always by my friend and colleague here at the J School, DuPont Director Lisa R. Cohen. Hello, Lisa. Hey, Abby. I know we took a little break, but we are back and we're in person in the actual studio. New York is slowly opening back up and so are we here at the J School. Our 80th awards ceremony on February 8th was virtual, it's true, but it was almost as grand as the past celebrations we do in person. We had hundreds of guests, and there was even a virtual after party, which was really, really a blast. It was so, so much fun. And there was so much incredible work to celebrate. In 2022, we gave out 16 batons to a host of deeply reported groundbreaking pieces covering the most important stories of the year, from the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol to the pandemic to the devastating blast in Beirut and multiple stories about the housing crisis, police malfeasance, and racial inequities in America. And for the second year, we also selected finalists, which was exciting, too. So the 2022 DuPont ceremony just wrapped, but we're already looking forward to 2023 award season. That's right. We will open for DuPont submissions on the website on May 1st, and our deadline is July 1st. Okay, before we get ahead of ourselves, let's just talk about a really important winner from this year's DuPonts, Laura Sullivan and NPR's Wasteland. In this 30-minute radio story, Laura makes some major revelations about the oil and gas industry and how they tricked the American public into thinking plastic wasn't a problem. The DuPont jury applauded the wry narration matched with deep reporting in this story. One juror wrote that too often investigative journalists spend oodles of time on the dig and then just spew out the findings of their research. The storytelling often takes a back seat. That is definitely not the case with Planet Money's Wasteland, where the listener is taken on a journey of the journalistic hunt. So let's take a listen to our edited conversation with NPR's Laura Sullivan, starting with my favorite part of the job, telling the winners, in this case over Zoom, that they have won a silver baton. Laura, you are a past DuPont winner, correct? You are a two-time winner. Yes. Uh, we have some news. We're surprising you today with the news that Wasteland has won a 2022 DuPont award. Are you serious? I won? Oh my God. <laughs> 
Congratulations. Really Congratulations, Laura. Oh my God. Like this is the award that as a journalist, you feel the most honored by because it gets to the heart of that very question of whether or not this story mattered. And for me, it's the best award in journalism. Can you just give us like a thumbnail of what the story is? So our story is a story about how big oil have misled the American public and told them for almost 40 years that all the plastic that they see in their world can be and will be recycled. Which is like, next you're going to tell me there's no Santa Claus, right, Laura? You're trying to like... Shatter. I know. It was such a hard story for me because I grew up recycling. Back in the 1980s, here's how recycling worked. You could recycle glass, paper, and metal. But recycling plastic wasn't really a thing yet. The cost of recycling plastic was really expensive, so nobody collected it. This is Coy Smith. He ran a recycling business out in San Diego. And even though it was too expensive, by the early 1990s, Coy decided he was going to let his customers recycle two types of plastic, milk jugs and soda bottles. But then one day, his customers, just out of nowhere, started throwing in more than just milk jugs and soda bottles. And Coy Smith was like, wait, who, who told them they could throw all this plastic in the bin? He starts looking at all the plastic. He's flipping it over. And then he sees something that he's never seen on the plastic before. The symbol starts showing up on the containers. And this stamp made people believe something that wasn't true, that all this plastic trash could be and would be turned into something else. So if recycling plastic is not working now, and it didn't work 30 years ago, did it ever work? That led us to the biggest question of all. If this has all been a lie, where did it come from? What I found was a paper trail, crinkled up documents that apparently did not get recycled, long forgotten in old boxes. And the trail leads, well, it leads to a guy named Larry. The the paper trail for this story was fascinating because we ended up in a lot of archives where you would keep 40-year-old documents. Now, some of these documents were coming from lawsuits, tobacco lawsuits, ironically, and asbestos lawsuits, class action lawsuits in the 90s that had nothing to do with plastic or recycling, but had some of the same players. So a lot of their board meeting minutes were in those documents, but then a lot of them were industry documents and they're no longer viewable by the public, but the really old ones are still available on the grounds of different company archive settings. And some of it was completely random. I mean, you would spend, you know, hours pulling out cellophane from when they were trying to make saran wrap. But we found a lot of the trade notes. And if you had just read those documents, you would have thought nobody would ever believe recycling was going to work. Even they knew how many problems it had. They turned around at the exact same time and launched hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising their way out of the problem that they were having and telling the public all the way down to the kindergartners and recycling contests, all of which were funded ultimately by the oil and gas industry, you can recycle it. What was so sort of genius about it is that it put the responsibility on the public. If there was plastic in the ocean 40 years later, that was the public's fault because the public didn't recycle their plastic. It was kind of like, don't blame us. We told you, you should recycle it. The main subject who sort of puts it all in perspective in your story 
tell us about finding him and tell us about what he was like. In all these arguments, one name kept coming up over and over again, and it was Larry Thomas. I remember there was a photo of him with the mayor of Chicago, and it said it called him a bigwig. So he was the the head of the lobbying for the oil and gas industry in the the 80s and 90s at this really critical time when the plastic industry was under such pressure from the public because there was so much plastic trash everywhere. They were in a panic and they needed to do something. And we found this one document where this Larry Thomas called everybody to the Ritz-Carlton in Washington, D.C. I mean, these are the biggest players in the industry. This is like the head of Exxon, the head of Chevron all of these giant oil companies that were making the oil that makes plastic. He called them to this meeting and said, you gotta come, your future profitability is at stake. The feeling was we gotta do what it takes to take the heat off because we wanna continue to make plastic products. And so I was like, we have to find this guy because he knew that this crisis was taking place. He was one of the guys that was right in the heart of it. It was very hard to find him. It was basically just like old school reporting where you're just picking up the phone and dialing every Larry Thomas that I could find in Florida. And I actually didn't actually reach him. I reached his wife. I figured out from talking to her that that was the right Larry Thomas and that she was nice enough to give me his cell phone number. And then ultimately he agreed to do an interview with us and that transformed the story. As the person who would most know what was happening and what the thought process was. Over the years, he changed his mind about what they had done and, and what he had been a part of. And he was very concerned with the amount of plastic that he saw. And he was very frustrated with the oil companies for continuing to do this for decades. He was sort of the, the, the person who had the most authority and the ability to say, it was a lie, it was a lie to make more money. That was a huge turnaround for somebody to really step forward and say, I don't like what we did. So when you're reporting this out and you finally find Larry, get him on the phone, hear his voice, get to know him as a character for your story, did it match up to what you were hoping? Like, what was it like for you connecting with him and realizing that he was gonna really give the information and the context that you yeah. needed? You can spend years on all kinds of stories hoping for moments like that and hoping for sources like that who will tell you the truth about something that happens, even at their own expense. There was a lot of discussion about how difficult it was to recycle. They knew that the infrastructure wasn't there to really have recycling amount to a whole lot. So I asked Larry, why? Why spend tens of millions of dollars telling people to recycle plastic when they knew recycling plastic wasn't going to work? And that's when he said it, the point of the whole thing. If the public thinks the recycling is working, then they're not going to be as concerned about the environment. I remember when he first said it on the record, on tape, when we were in the studio, just thinking... People need to know this. People have to hear this. To me, that was sort of watershed moment for the whole thing. This was just one of those very rare times when somebody was coming forward and saying, I don't know if what we did was right. And I, I have a lot of misgivings about my time in working for the oil industry. It was remarkable because it's, it's unimpeachable. Here's someone 
basically confirming everything that you're hearing in the records and explaining this is the solution they came up with to mislead the public. And it worked. You know, they've launched a giant billion dollar ad campaign all over again. And some of the most fun that I think we had as a team was playing these old ads for some of these old timers, reminding them of what they came up with 30 years ago and then playing the new ad. And Larry Thomas says, sounds exactly the same. Sounds like the ads we came up with. So I feel like the difference this time is that the last time we had no idea, right? Hopefully people will understand that that's not, it's not true. And it never has been. I'm hoping now that people will hear the story because I want them to know the truth when they hear the ads this time. Like fooled me once, shame on you. Fooled me twice. Right. 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 It, it was amazing to me to listen to the person that you talked to who's sort of spinning the new line and what was coming in his mouth sounded exactly like what they had been saying 40 years earlier. It's hard to imagine he can just say all that with his straight face. The guy at Chevron who sat down and spoke to us, you know, said that they're going to recycle all their plastic by 2040. And there weren't any specifics to that. There wasn't any, here's how we're going to do it. Like you're saying that the company wants 100% of this plastic getting yeah. recycled. How do you get there? I, I think there's a couple things that have to happen. Much more education. You also have to really build up the infrastructure for collection. We're gonna to have to invest in innovation. Regulation has some role to play here. Recycling, education, better collection. This can't be the new plan. This is the old plan. This is the plan from the It was the a 90s tense interview because he was saying, we can recycle our way out of this problem. And I'm just saying over and over again, but you haven't, but you can't, you know? But he's like, but we can. It seemed like everybody was hiding behind this idea that the magical technology that was gonna sort all the plastic was gonna materialize. So the more you pushed in these interviews and said, but how, what are you talking about? Like, what machine? You, you were just kind of going around and around. Well, it will, trust us, trust us. We're gonna get there, don't worry. So what is a, what is a consumer to do? I mean, as you were saying, we're all much more aware now when we go to the grocery store, thanks to your reporting. But uh, obviously reducing our use of plastics in the groceries that we buy is an important part. But should I just stop separating my plastic now? Should I even bother? For me, when I go to the grocery store now after this story, I feel nothing but utter defeat. And I am an avid aluminum can and cardboard box recycler, steel soup cans. There is recycled steel in your soup can that could go back 30, 40 years. You can melt it and reform it, melt it and reform it, melt it and reform it. There are a lot of environmentalists that will say, but you know, the cans take a lot of resources too. And I hear that, you know, and you gotta transport them and steel has its own problems and there's no perfect product, right? I think that the most important thing that people need to understand when they're looking at plastic is that it is trash. It is not valuable. It cannot and will not be turned into something new without great expense that nobody's gonna pay for. And if, if we start from that understanding, it's gonna be used once, or maybe it's gonna carry your melons home, and then it is going into the landfill. That changes the entire conversation about what's happening with plastic. 
And from that point, you can go back to the original environmentalist message from the early 1970s before it got hijacked by all the advertising of reduce, reuse, and if all else fails, try to recycle it. Reducing and reusing, though, for oil companies, that doesn't make a lot of money. So you can see why they've never embraced that philosophy. I can imagine you would continue to follow the story. There are, are there any hopeful signs on the horizon? I get a lot of emails from companies that are saying, uh, you should check out what we're doing because we can get the plastic out of the ocean or we can make this work or like blah, blah, blah. I've gotten a lot of emails from industry-funded groups that are trying to incinerate plastic and use it for energy. The problem with all of these efforts is that nobody in 40 years has been able to get around the fundamental problem that it is cheaper, easier, and of better quality to use virgin oil and gas to make plastic than to make it out of plastic trash. I saw a 60 minute story about a guy who was close to creating a biodegradable plastic. What, what do you think about that? I get this, this all the time from people where they say, you know, you should do a story about this incredible company that I'm creating because I'm going to solve the plastic crisis. A lot of the environmental groups that are reaching out and um, trying to solve the plastic waste crisis are, even if they don't know it, funded by the oil and gas companies. Because the more that they promote the viability of plastic recycling, the better the oil companies do. Part of our, our reporting really uncovered that the greenest, most environmentally sound recycling companies are sort of circuitously funded by the oil and gas industry. So they can launch a lot of projects that are not economically viable. The chicanery of oil companies should surprise exactly no one. Right but the money's coming in, so why change? Right. And as also, long as they're making money, it's working for them. And I think that it has been. I don't think they've had, you know, it has not, this hasn't hurt them at all. I mean, there's a little bit of an uprising against plastic, but they feel at this point that the ship, the ship has sailed. What ship? The ship of plastic dependency? Exactly. I wonder if there's anything in the, in the Build Back Better. I know. I worry sometimes because I think that it's easy for the federal government to also fall back on recycling. You know, the recycling annual festival at the, that the federal government was putting on, it was all about recycling. It's so easy to fund these programs. Tell the kids to recycle. Put the bench in front of the grocery store that says made out of plastic bags. Well, nobody's asking, can you make this bench cheaper out of virgin oil and gas? Yes. Is anybody going to want to spend more money on this bench because you made it out of plastic bags? No. <laughs> you know, just because one oil company packed up enough bags and paid for this bench, are we now going to make all of our benches out of this, even though it's more expensive and less feasible and these plastic bags can only be recycled in two facilities in the United States? Like when you actually get down into the nitty gritty of these questions, the whole thing falls apart. It's like a house of cards. So we are a journalism school. And so a lot of the great things that come out of these awards is, is helpful advice and information for our students. And I had a couple questions. Specifically, you do an investigation like this. You know, it's so hard. You get turned down, you get sent down false roads. Yeah. First of all, did you, did that happen? Was there a point where you were really frustrated? Can you tell us about that? Did you think about giving up and how do you deal with those moments? 
I felt very frustrated that we were never going to find the industry insiders. I remember wondering if we would be able to find any of the documents. It's rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole. I went down a giant rabbit hole. And then this is the lesson that I, I would, I hope that people will take away from this, that, that, that students coming up is that it does feel like you just wasted a whole bunch of time on something that turned out to be not relevant at all to what ends up being your nut graph, right? In the story. Um, except that it always is. It gives you a flavor of things that you wouldn't have had otherwise. When you spend hours in archives and hours on online archives even, just digging around, there's a process that's happening in the back of your head where you're in sort of the weeds of all this stuff and you know, you're sort of going blind with it, but in the back of your head, the question of your story is forming because you're constantly asking yourself, what am I looking for? What is it exactly that I wanna find? I mean, you don't really go into these projects thinking, I am going to prove that the oil industry knew that recycling was a lie and they perpetuated this myth on the American public. You don't know that. Nobody knows that. The story hasn't been done yet. You're just kind of in this morass, this syrup of just, you know, documents and, and you don't know what ends up. But in the back of your head, the more you ask, what is it that I'm looking for in here? Does this look interesting to me? Why do I think this is interesting? The question's forming. Could this have been a lie? Could it be that they knew all along that recycling didn't work? And that is the most valuable thing at all. It feels like nothing. It may look to your editor like it's nothing, but it's actually the most important thing that's happening while you're investigating a story is raising the question that you end up finding out is true. And then the moment when somebody like Larry Thomas says, you're right, we did lie. That's magic. That's what we do. That's, that's the whole thing. Thank you so much for doing this interview yeah. and congratulations. I can't even tell you how excited I am. <laughs> it's like beyond. <laughs> Thanks again to Laura. You can listen to Wasteland on NPR's website or Spotify. It's just half an hour. And as you can tell from our conversation with her, every minute is a revelation about what's really going on with all of our plastics. Depressing, but really engaging. And really important. This first episode of our new On Assignment season is brought to you with support from Columbia Journalism School and the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. And it was produced by our DuPont fellow, Emily Russell. Our sound engineer was an old hand, A.J. Mangone. You can keep up with the DuPont Awards on Columbia Journalism School's official Twitter at Columbia Journ. And don't forget, we're opening up for submissions for the next cycle of the DuPont Awards on May 1st. You can check it out and learn more about DuPont at www.dupont.org. And it's really just around the corner, so we look forward to seeing some amazing new pieces of journalism. Always a pleasure. Until next time. <laughs>